Welcome to the Upper 90 Football Podcast, providing American coverage and opinions on all things football. I'm Garrett Post. And I'm Justin Ruderman. And Justin, this is essentially our last episode of this season covering the events of the 2021-22 season in Europe. Um, Obviously, we still have MLS coverage and transfers to talk about all summer, and we'll be bringing new content as we've been talking about. But Justin, we had a bunch of finals in Europe, across Europe this weekend. So much to talk about. Let's dive right in, starting with the biggest game of the year. It is, of course, the UEFA Champions League final, Madrid versus Liverpool in Paris. Talk us through it. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, it was dominated pretty much for from start to finish by Liverpool um, possession wise, not, not as much as you might think, but they're just chances and chances, but Real Madrid would not concede in that first half. And then right at the end of the first half, Benzema puts it in the back of the net, but it's, you know, called offside, which is just a perplexing decision. Uh, I think most people agree that it wasn't offside. We put a poll out on Twitter and, and the vast majority said uh, it was, it should have counted for sure. And then, uh, of course, in the second half, it was Vinicius in the 59th minute getting the lone goal uh, to win it for Madrid. It's interesting that the past three Champions League finals have all been decided 1-0. So not that much scoring, uh, you know, defensive wins. And that's what it was for Real Madrid, right? They don't play finals. They win finals. And that's what it was in this case, because even though Liverpool dominated, they had the most chances. They had a ton of chances, but Madrid scored two goals really and should have won the game two nil and that's the all she wrote really yeah i mean benzema is in an offside position right because of the second to last defender rule allison's way out of his goal but the fact of the matter is that it comes off of fabinho very clearly changes direction and in my opinion it is a deliberate attempt to play the ball it's a sliding block on a touch from valverde it then hits, I think it was Kanate, and then Fabinho, and then comes to Benzema. So how that's ruled offside, I don't understand. But Madrid got what they deserved. They were clinical. Liverpool wasted a lot of chances and also didn't help that Thibaut Courtois had the game of his life. What an unbelievable performance from him. Just some outstanding saves. I think that, you know, obviously the one from Mane where he tipped it on to the post. And then also in the second half when Salah was through on his right foot and he just got a forearm on it to send it wide. I mean, Courtois, I, I had a debate with uh, some friends a couple of weeks ago about who the best keeper in the world is at the moment. I said Courtois, and uh, that was a justified selection based on what we saw on Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he had a post-game quote, didn't he? He said, I had to win a final to put some respect on my name because I don't think I get enough respect, especially in England. I, I think that's definitely a fair statement from Courtois. You know, a lot of players sometimes feel, you know, a little bit attacked or they feel some type of way about how the fans look at them that may not be accurate. In this, say, in this case, I think that he's right um, because when he left Chelsea, obviously everyone rated him when he was at Chelsea, he was very good. But then his first season or two at Real Madrid, he wasn't fantastic. Uh, and, you know, they replaced him with Kepa and then Edward Mendy. And it's not like Chelsea have really had uh, an issue at goalkeeper once Mendy has been there. And so I think that people don't realize just how good Thibaut Courtois is. Yeah, he's been fantastic over the last, you know, two and a half seasons, really. That first year was rough, as you say. Um, and, but it was rough for Madrid overall. Um, but then he's really bounced back, has gotten back to the player that I think we've always known he is, you know, since his time at, at Letty, obviously 
losing to Madrid in the final when Sergio Ramos scored that equalizer uh, deep into stoppage time. Um, and so this was like a big performance, a man of the match performance in a European final, yep. which I think really does concretely stake his name as one of the best, if not the best goalkeeper in the world at the moment. Cementing his legacy for sure. Uh, and then a couple other notes of the game. It was Marcelo's last game for Real Madrid. Uh, after obviously a long, long time there. And then Modric, who, you know, we heard his quote before the game that he said, I've not extended my contract with Madrid, but I won't do an Mbappe, uh, which I thought was pretty funny. But he he did, you know, find that one-year extension uh, after the game, right? So good for him. I also just wanted to give him an honorable mention as well, because I thought he was absolutely fantastic in this game. And honestly, this whole season, especially in Madrid's cup run, I've just been blown away by how good he still is at that age of 36 still you know one of the best midfielders in the world at the moment and in my mind he's staking his claim to be a top five maybe even top three midfielder of all time just with the longevity and the success and I've just been so blown away by how good he has been this season Absolutely. You know, Madrid were dominated in the midfield, especially in that first half, but then it was Modric uh, and Cruz and Casemiro had to really work together. Obviously they are are all fantastic players, but they had to find a way back into the game and control some possession because if they didn't, weren't able to do that, which they eventually did, uh, especially in that second half, and they evened out those possession numbers. um, If, if that didn't happen, Liverpool would have buried one of those chances eventually because they were just pounding it on for a while. And then the other thing to me is, uh, Vinicius obviously gets the goal, but you know, it, it's pretty obvious at this point, like everybody knew it before the game that Trent Alexander Arnold is not a defender and he's going to have a problem with Vinicius coming at him all game. And that ended up being the difference. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that goal from Vinicius was poor defending from Liverpool all around. It was Robertson who came way out of position, trying to press Modric for no real reason, you know, Modric at midfield and he ends up just turning, finding Valverde. And then what Van Dyke is doing there, I have no idea. He like runs past Valverde and then tries to like stick his back leg out, makes it easy for, for Valverde, just shoot it across the box. And then, you know, Trent, we've seen, he, he's not great at marking people at the back post. And, you know, Vinicius is there. It's, you know, a tap in. He did really well to just make sure the contact was good, wasn't leaning back, kept his head over the ball and kept it on target. And, you know, that ended up being enough. Yeah, absolutely. And then what was interesting was Liverpool ended up having their parade for their, you know, two cup uh, trophies the next day in Liverpool. Uh, you know, Klopp tried to spin it as, oh, look at all the support we have. Even the day after losing, everybody comes out in great spirits to celebrate. I think you had a different view. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the images that were being circulated, especially by, you know, even ex-Liverpool players, Jose Enrique and what he's been saying on Twitter, and he was posting a picture of the parade from when they actually won the Champions League. So, I, I mean, it's just kind of bizarre situation overall. Like, you know, if I, I understand, you know, you, you did a double for the first time in a long time. You want to do a parade for that. That's fine. But like 18 hours or 12 hours after you lose the Champions League final, it's just bizarre to me. Uh, and especially also there was a, a story before the Champions League final where Liverpool obviously had planned this parade, win or lose, um, but it was on the anniversary of the, of the Hazel disaster, and there were a lot of Juventus fans who were very unhappy about that. Um, and I read an article in which they were saying basically, oh, we're, we'll be rooting for Real Madrid because we don't want 
them to, you know, be celebrating during Hazel, but they did it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting too, because last season you look at city uh, who lost the champions league final and they had won the premier league and they canceled their parade because of that loss to the champion in the champions league final, even though, you know, I think that we can agree the premier league is, is the biggest trophy um, and still canceled the parade for it. So definitely an interesting decision by Liverpool there. And then before we just move on to the other finals that we had quickly, obviously we know Real Madrid, probably the biggest club in the world. And I mean, 14 European cups is absolutely mental. And then, uh, you know, above that, Carlo Ancelotti became the first manager to win four European cups, um, two with Milan and two Madrid now. And it's just a remarkable achievement for both him and the club. Yeah, and he won two as a player as well. So he has six to his name, um, which is ridiculous. Setting that the same season as he also set the record of he's the only manager to win all five of the top European leagues. It's just you can't deny his greatness at this point. And regardless of, you know, I know Garrett's Evertonian and what he did there and things like that, but you just can't deny he, he is one of the top five greatest coaches of the modern era, undoubtedly. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's not a debate. And as much as, you know, I, I didn't want to have to root for him in this final. Um, but, you know, he, he's an amazing manager. And despite the fact that I feel he did my club very wrong, I, uh, <laughs> I, I can't deny that he's, you know, he's a winning machine. Absolutely. And with that, I think we can move to the secondary competition, the Europa League final. Um between Frankfurt and Rangers, obviously it was uh, Rangers that went ahead in the 57th minute through Joe Arabo, and then Frankfurt responded Rafael Santos in the 69th minute. It ended up staying that way uh, until penalties, which Frankfurt won 5-4. What were your thoughts on this game, Garrett? I mean, some crazy scenes there. The celebrations uh, at the watch party back in Frankfurt were insane, but I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little disappointed because I did kind of want Rangers to win this. I just thought that would be a remarkable story with the, the season that they've had. Um, and, and, you know, their, their path to the final has been pretty remarkable. Um, but, you know, Frankfurt are, are a good side. Um, and, and, you know, on the balance of the game, did they deserve to win? Mm, maybe. I mean, 22 shots. It was pretty even. I, I think it's, it's a shame always when things get decided by penalties, in my opinion. Um, you know, I'd rather see a team win outright, but you know, in, in the biggest moments, you got to step up and that's what Frankfurt did. I just want to say that Spain uh, did a lot better job hosting this final than France did. Uh, as we saw the Champions League final had to start, you know, half an hour late because uh, of all the uh, issues outside getting in for fans, whether you had tickets or, or the few some fans trying to get in without tickets but just pepper spraying uh you know fans reporters everybody families children um, it it, yeah exactly it it was it was a bad scene out there so uh, we got to recognize when when it's held a little bit better Uh, obviously you know paris it was thrown on them a little bit late uh with everything russia and ukraine that's been going on um but still you know they're they're about to host an olympics they should be doing better than that but yeah, just congratulations to Frankfurt uh, on their second Europa League uh, title. And then, Justin, we can move to the last European final that we had. Obviously, the new competition, the Europa Conference League. 
and it was Jose Mourinho's Roma going up against Feyenoord from Eredivisie. And it was the Romans who found the win through Nicolo Zaniolo, which, I mean, by the way, what a great player to have score the winning goal. Obviously, it has had real injury problems recently, you know, an up-and-coming talent who was looking so bright, um, you know, just last season, the season before, and, and has had two ACLs. And so to see him come back and score the winning goal in a final for Roma, pretty fantastic. And with that, Jose Mourinho became the first manager to win all three European competitions. Obviously, you know, he's the only manager who's really had a chance to do that. So we'll see if anybody joins him. I honestly am not sure if anybody, any of those other managers will end up in the conference league anytime soon. So it's, although people were kind of bragging about that with Mourinho, you know, it's a stat, but I, I wouldn't say it's, you know, the greatest accomplishment. Well, Yes, but he's also now five for five in European finals. Uh, he has not lost a European final as a manager. And, you know, this is why I say Jose Mourinho is not finished. People continue to hate on this man, but he is so good. Even now, I will continue to back him because he brought a, a team who can't win a trophy. He brought Tottenham Hotspur to the final last in, in the cup last uh, year. And he was sacked right before he was about to win them a final. This man doesn't lose finals. I don't know why Tottenham decided, hey, let's not win a trophy and, and sack Jose Mourinho. They should have kept him. He would have won them that trophy. He now came to Roma. I thought he would do better in the league, but he wait, won them a up, trophy. Wait, hold up. Wait, 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 wait. So you're telling me that you think if Spurs had kept Mourinho, they would have beaten Manchester City? Because remember, they were playing City in that final. Yeah. Wow. I, I did I think not expect that. Jose Mourinho doesn't lose finals. He's better than Pep Guardiola in a final. Pep Guardiola is a better manager to me. But again, we were talking about Ganchelotti being the uh, top five managers of the modern era. So is Mourinho. So is Pep Guardiola. So Mourinho is a better uh, final manager, in my opinion. I Pep Guardiola is a better manager overall. Obviously, he's in the league, which to me is more important. Uh, Pep Guardiola is consistently better. But... For a final? Yes, I take Jose Mourinho, absolutely. Even and though so, he had a significantly inferior squad. Harry Kane and Seungman Son can go and smash and grab. I'm, I've been seeing most of these are low-scoring finals. It's not about you know City scoring a bunch of goals. That's not going to happen, especially Jose Mourinho is going to play defensively. 1-1, one, 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 and 2-1-0 scores in the three finals. It's low-scoring. That's what Jose Mourinho does. He's going to play defensively and hit you on the counter with Kane and Son. Yes, I believe he's very good at that, and he got them to the final for a reason. Um, and he's just still a top manager, in my opinion. And what he did in this game proves it, in my opinion, as well. So, uh, But as far as the game-wise, I thought that you know Pellegrini stood out to me, played an incredible game, just that midfield with Mkhitaryan as well. And then uh, another player I backed when I when Abraham went to Roma as well, just like Mourinho, I said that they will succeed there. Yeah. Abraham has had an incredible season. Um and, you know, he should get a move away from Roma to even a better club very soon because, you know, Roma are now uh, going to be in the Europa League, but he should be at a Champions League competing club, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I agree that it was ludicrous of Spurs to, to sack Mourinho before that final, but they did finish sixth. I think in order to call him a top manager, they need to be competing for top four next season getting in and in towards those champions league spots. And also, you know, yeah, they scored a half hour into this game and then protected the lead, 
but they did not dominate this game. They had less shots, less shots on target, and only a third of the possession. So, and that's and that's in a team in Feyenoord. That's Jose Mourinho style. Yeah, but it's a team who are you know not even a, a top five uh, in a top five league and finished third in the Netherlands. So it's not like this is some great team in some great competition. He basically had to shite house a win against the third best team in the Netherlands in a kind of Mickey Mouse final. That's just my me playing devil's advocate, but I, I won't pretend that Mourinho's not a legendary manager. I just think at the moment he's not as high as you are saying. Everyone tries to discredit him, but I will continue to back this man till the day he retires. And then, Justin, we can move to two other big games that we had that basically were finals in France. It was the relegation playoff final, and it was Saint-Étienne who were relegated in front of their home fans, and they were not happy about it. Absolutely right. You know, we've seen these pitch invasions uh, especially in England recently for, you know, celebratory pitch invasions. But we saw a very different scene in, in Paris where the fans rushed the field very angry and started throwing flares at the players as they tried to run off the field. They threw them, you know, into the tunnel, basically. It was a, a terrible scene. And we discussed this last uh, podcast when we were like, we worry for the safety of these players uh, and coaches, coaching staff, everybody on the pitch that is contributing. But, it's just really, really tough to see. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely one that there, there is no defense for fans cannot be acting like that, regardless of the situation. And, you know, Santa Tien, obviously a, a proud club and it's a shame to see them drop, but that is not an excuse for those actions. And then Justin, we can go to England for the promotion playoff final that we uh, previewed a little bit last week. It was Nottingham Forest against Huddersfield at Wembley, and this game was rife with controversy. Controversy. It was Forest who would end up the winners through a Levi Colwell own goal, the Chelsea Cobham product, who's been on loan at Huddersfield this season. Um, bit unfortunate. It was a really good ball in, and he tried to make a block, but you know, just skids off his knee into the net. But Huddersfield were denied two penalties and and you know the second one even more stonewall than the first in my opinion we were debating this justin and my thoughts on the first one were that john moss has to call it a penalty on the pitch but i do understand why var decided not to overturn the call on the field and that was what um the commentators or one of the commentators said um, at the time but i do totally understand the argument of you know, it's, it should be a penalty. And then the second one is absolutely stonewall a penalty. And the fact that neither of them were given Huddersfield have every right to feel very hard done by. Yeah. In my opinion, both should have been given as I told you earlier, but uh, I was rooting for Nottingham Forest, so I'm not going to complain. It's unfortunate for Huddersfield. They definitely should have been given at least one, if not both of those, but you know, Nottingham Forest back into the premier league. uh, Congratulations to them, but it's just another team that's going to sing to city fans. We have a European cup and you don't. <laughs> You're not wrong. And they have two actually. So yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was also rooting for Forrest, as I said last week, because incredibly historic club, we haven't seen them in the prem and I believe it's 23 years. And, you know, we saw Huddersfield relatively recently and I really don't think they added much to the league. If we're being honest, I think Forrest being back is fantastic. It's going to feel a lot, like Leeds being back almost, although 
I highly doubt they will do as well in their first season back as Leeds did last year under Bielsa. But yeah, Forest being back, the city ground, a fantastic stadium. I'm really excited for that. And with Nottingham Forest going up, Garrett, we can then move to our Premier League team of the seasons. Uh, it has been a very good season with a lot of quality players and a lot you don't want to leave out of your team of the seasons, but it has to be done, Garrett. And we can start off with our goalkeepers. Tell me who you have. I've gone for Jose Saw. And, and mm. I think it's, I wouldn't say it's an under the radar pick. I, I think definitely his first half of the season was definitely more notable than the second half. But I honestly feel like goalkeepers this year, you know, I think the other shout would be Allison, but I'm going to stick with my bias and go Jose Saw because he exceeded expectations. I think. Allison stayed at the level that people kind of thought he would be at. Meanwhile, Jose saw people were writing him off saying, Oh man, wolves downgraded so far from Rui Patricio. And that definitely was not the case. He had a fantastic year. Yeah, absolutely. He did. I thought it might be a downgrade as well as I thought Bruno Lodge might be neither one uh, a downgrade, but you said it, the other one, Allison, I had to pick him. Uh, he had a really, really good year, uh, obviously tying for the uh, golden glove with Ederson, but his stats, I mean, are, are incredible. Top for save percentage, top for post shot, uh, you know, expected goal stopping. So it, it's just very, very good. And it's hard when, you know, Liverpool are going to dominate most games. So it's harder when you're um, not that, you know, Wolves were Wolves were a very good team as well. But Allison faced fewer shots. So you have kind of have to stay on your toes. Uh, but both of them, very, very good seasons. All right, Justin, right back. I have gone for Trent Alexander-Arnold, even though we both agree that he's not really a right back, but it is where he plays. But I mean, it's just the, the amount of assists doesn't lie. It, it's a bit ridiculous, uh, his goal-creating uh, actions and his assists every single year. Um, so I, I had to go for Trent, although we know that he is a defensive liability um, and, you know, plays as a winger, but most of the time in Liverpool's system that suits them, it will bite them sometimes in big games as we saw, but for a Premier League team of the season, I think you have to put Trent in there. Absolutely. I mean, 12 assists, only second to his teammate, Mohamed Salah with 13. You have to put him as your right back in your team of the season, as I did as well. But you're right. It's just, it's hard to put him in there because if you're actually wanting a defender, the answer is Kyle Walker. But if you're, yeah, because, but it's just that trend is so good going forward. And the, the ability to create is just so impressive. Um, he has to be your, your right back. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I would say is, you know, the system just suits him so perfectly. And I think that's one of, been one of the big things that Klopp has done that's brought Liverpool so much success is, you know, I think not enough credit is given to the fact that the, the team, a lot of it is built around Trent. Like, he's a huge part of how they play. Um, and so they feed him the ball in these areas. And obviously, his passing ability is a bit ridiculous, but it's also the volume, right? His crossing accuracy, 30% doesn't jump off the page, wow. but when he's making 68 passes per match and he's created, he's created 18 big chances, 12 of which were converted. I mean, yeah, it, it's just, he, he gets a lot of the ball and most of the time he does something good with it. And when you have those forwards up there in Salah and Mane and Jota and Luis Diaz to a lesser extent, you know, you're going to put up big numbers and that's what he does. And then Justin, we can move to the center backs. Let's do, are let's do both of them let's do both of them i've gone for 
Joel Matip, and Antonio Rudiger. Mm. And my my thought process behind that is is just you know I think Van Dyke obviously has been very good, but I don't think he's been himself really is my personal opinion. Despite you know the the success that Liverpool have had, but I think a big part of that has been Joel Matip has really stepped up to the plate. Um, I think this has been by far his best season in a Liverpool shirt, if not his be- the best season of his career, likely the best season of his career. And every time I've watched him play, I've been really impressed. So I went for Joel Matip and then Rudiger, obviously Chelsea underperforming this season, but I, I honestly still think he's the best. He was the best player in that back line uh, with full due respect to Thiago Silva, but there's a reason he's getting a big move to the champions of Europe. Um, and, and I expect him to succeed there because Rudiger is a fantastic player. Um, and I think that's a really good signing on a free from Madrid. Yeah, absolutely. Rudiger has had a great season and matchup. And it's funny because that would be my second string uh, is those two. I think they both had very good seasons, but um, I I went with two other guys because I think that, you know, these top center backs get a lot of credit. And I like that you picked Matip over Van Dyke because I think he definitely was the best Liverpool center back. I think he was had a better season than Van Dyke, but most people are going to go with Van Dyke because he's the name. You know, Ruben Diaz has been getting picked uh, in these team of seasons, which doesn't really make sense to me. He didn't have no. a great season. Uh, it's just it's just like people pick names for defenders a lot, especially these center backs, because it's a little bit harder to um, you know decide than you know uh, an attacking player where you can look at uh, goals and assists and things like that. Uh, for me, I went with my first one who, in my opinion, has been the best center back in the league this season is uh, Christian Romero from Spurs. I think he has been uh, an inspired signing. Really, really good. You look at his uh, underlying stats. They're incredible. He's top 90 percentile for pressures, tackles, interceptions, blocks. He has just had an incredible season for Tottenham Hotspur. And I think that uh, he's going to be integral to Conte building them into a successful team going forward. And then my second one, I, got, I had to pick somebody outside of the uh, top six because I just think that, you know, sometimes you don't get enough credit. It was Roman Saiz of Wolves. We've been talking about wow. how they had, yeah, he, he had a good, uh, you know, Wolves had an overperforming season than, than what most people would uh, expect. But if you look at the the stats for Roman Saiz, he had probably the best stats of any uh, center back in the league this season. I just think that he had uh, played really, really well, uh, you know, 87th percentile for interceptions, 88th for clearances, and pretty much everything above 50 percentile. So he's just really succeeding in that defensive attributes. The thing is, yeah, maybe he doesn't contribute as much progressing the ball or, uh, you know, scoring goals as somebody like Matip Rudiger uh, would do. But that that's the difference for me when I'm picking a center back, I'm focusing on the defensive statistics. So uh, I definitely think that Rudiger and Matip are better, you know, as offensive weapons, which adds to them. But for me, Romero and Saiz, my two center backs. That Saiz shout is out of nowhere. I did not see that coming, but I love uh, that you picked Romero. It was a toss up between him and Rudiger for me. And I, I opted for Rudiger, maybe the big name bias there, but I do totally agree that he's been a fantastic signing for Spurs and, and will be a crucial part of um, 
Conte's project going forward. And, and I think if they get him another solid partner and not that Eric, Eric Dyer has been bad this season. I mean, I've hated on him a lot in the past. He's been good in the stretch, but I still feel like if Spurs want to, you know, get to that next level, they're going to need someone better. So it'll be really interesting to see if they're going after um, another center back in the window. I'd be surprised if they didn't. And with that, Justin, we can move to left back. I'd be shocked if we didn't both put the same player here. It's going to say the same thing, right? Has to be. There's no debate here. I mean, Jao Cancelo has been the best left back of the league. Look, he he was better in the first half of the season, no doubt. So it's it's some people don't, you know, the recency bias might make you not want to pick Cancelo quite as much. But overall, uh, his influence and the fact that he's a right back playing on the left side and still being the best left back in the league uh, is just incredible. I don't think that there's any denying Jao Cancelo as the best left back uh, and ended both of our Premier League team in the seasons. Uh, There's nothing I can really add to that, Justin. So we might as well move on. I fully agree. So let's go. I'm assuming you've gone for a 4-3-3 as we move into the midfield and attackers. Is that true? Yes, I have as well. Yep. Okay. So let's go go one center mid at a time then um, as not to do all three. That might be a a bit much. As my like defensive midfielder, uh, and I think you would berate me if I didn't pick this. It has to be Rodri. (laughs) You're right. You're right. I would because Rodri has been... Uh, not only the best defensive midfielder in the world this season, but he's the most improved player in the Premier League this season, in my opinion. He has gotten so good uh, under Pep Guardiola this season. And that's what we see is it takes a a year or two for players to really grow into their uh, abilities under Pep because they have to understand the system, especially wingers, you know, really attacking players. But Rodri as well had this issue and to this season was where he really shined. Uh, I understand Declan Rice had a very good season and there are a couple other players as well, but to me, Rodri clear in a way, the best defensive midfielder, not only in Premier League, but in the world. Well, speaking of Declan Rice, that's my second midfielder. Um, I mean, just a fantastic player and really him coming into the fray and coming into his own, even as, you know, still such a young age has directly coincided with West Ham going from a club that was nearly relegated to, you know, a team in Europe fighting for getting to a Europa league semifinal and narrowly losing. And I I just think he's been such a fantastic player for West Ham. It's going to be huge when they end up losing him. I I mean, I'm not sure if that will be this summer. It's going to cost a hell of a lot of money. I'll tell you that, but Declan Rice, I mean, all the statistics, the ball progression, all of it, it shows he is an elite level player. He's a, undoubtedly champions league quality player um and, and you know uh, he will get that move eventually and i don't i see him staying in Premier league team of the seasons for years to come absolutely yeah the only reason i, I didn't put him in is he, i think of him more as a defensive midfielder similar to rodri so i just put him in that and then i'm gonna pick i, I know who you're gonna pick for your third midfielder so i will say my my other midfielder the eight uh is mason mount for me uh mm. he had a really good season double digits for both goals and assists, 11 goals, 10 assists. I think one of four players to do that uh, this season in the Premier League. I think that he was uh, Chelsea's best attacking player, but obviously best midfielder as well. I just think he had a a really impressive season uh, and obviously very young. We'll we'll continue to just get better. A very, very promising talent. Obviously, we see England talents overhyped a lot, but Mason Mount this year proved to me that he's not one of those overhyped players. No, I totally agree. I mean, one Chelsea's player of the season for, for the second year running, and you know, that's no little feat. So no, that Mount is a, is a great inclusion there. I like that. You said that um, 
I, I put Rice just because I, I view Suchek as more of the six and Rice as more of the eight in West Ham system. But I get what you're saying. And then I'm I'm assuming we've both picked Kevin De Bruyne as our last center mid. I think that would it would be a bit nuts if we didn't. Has to be. Uh, you know, he's just, I mean, he's the best player in the Premier League this season. Uh, the way that he carried City to the title, the title winning assist uh, to Ilkay Gundogan, he was just the best player and the most clutch player uh, as well. Just incredible watching him. You really can't, I can't even put into words the ability that he has uh, crossing the ball and creating. And he, you know, scored a lot more goals this season as well, got in front of goal, which I think uh, he said, you know, Pep has tried to urge him to do more, but he loves his assists, obviously. Um, and I just have to say as well, you know, the, I put Mount in because I, I didn't want to have a full city midfield, but Bernardo has to be an honorable mention here because he was so, so good. Again, especially in the first half of the year, but he was fantastic throughout the year. Uh, his ball progression, ball carrying statistics are unbelievable off the charts. So he is, uh, to me, just one of the best midfielders in the world. And if City lose him this summer, it would be a massive, massive loss. Hopefully that doesn't happen. And then, Justin, I, I honestly think we'll probably have the same front three as well. Most of these are no-brainers. Maybe striker is somewhere we could see something different. But if you have anything other than Son and Salah on the wings, I don't know what to tell you. Well, I do have Son, and then I put Salah up top, though. Because uh, I I wanted to put a different player in that third in that other winger spot, and so Salah can play winger or he can play striker. Obviously, uh, Mane has been Liverpool's striker this season with Salah obviously on his wing, and that's great. But Salah can play the striker as well. It's very very difficult for me to leave Mane out of this team of the season because I thought he I think he's been absolutely incredible for Liverpool. But I also think that I'm overrating uh, his year so far because you know we, he's been talked about in the Balloon Door race and i think that he should be obviously benzema's leading it but i think he should be in the conversation but i think it's a lot to do with what he's done for senegal as well and i can't let that influence my premier league team of the season so uh sala up front yes and then son the the two players that shared the golden boot obviously and, and then who was your so you put a striker i have a winger left but let's hear your striker i've gone for harry kane and you know he started the season slowly i'm aware of that but I do think a lot of that was down to Nuno and, you know, obviously Sun didn't start the season slowly the same as Kane, but for me, it was kind of a, one of the two is going to drop off a bit because it's just how they were playing and they weren't playing well. But if we're talking about players who have been clutch and have been great down the stretch, I mean, Kane had a horrible start to the season still ended with 17 goals and nine assists and fired, you know, him and Sun obviously fired Spurs into top four, despite the fact that they were in ninth when Conte took over or whatever it was. So for me, it's just uh, Harry Kane's just so good, still one of the best strikers in the world. And although he had a, a dip in form, unlike, you know, really anything we've seen in his career, the fact that he could bounce back and still end with 26 goal contributions at the end of the season, I just don't see how he doesn't make it for me. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the reasons I might not have put him is just my, the reason you were, talking about against Allison is like just my expectations for him are just so high. And I think he did have a drop off this season. And so for that reason, I don't think he should necessarily get into that team of the season. Uh, to me, Mane was harder to leave out even th than Kane, but the, the player uh, that I have left in my, you know, winger spot is Jared Bowen. Uh, wow. I think, you know, we, it's, it's really this, top six bias most teams that most Premier League team of the seasons you will see are completely top six and I just think that's unfair because that the, the lower teams are, I mean you know West Ham are in Europe but 
the the teams that are not top six that are not you know even in the top half they still have very very quality players that should be looked at but uh for me jared bowen again you know multiple uh double digit goals and assists for him as mason bount did uh and salah and son were the only other two to do that in the premier league i had to put all four of them in my premier league team of the season jared bowen uh, an incredible season and he he got his uh, England call up I believe as he should so he's just uh, keeps rising and he's still young as well yeah I, I think Bowen's a good shot if I were going to go for a winger outside of the top six I might have gone for Bukayo Saka um, you know I thought he had a really really good year for Arsenal and I mean I think it's really easy to forget that Bukayo Saka just turned uh, 20 like at the beginning of the season or midway yeah. into the season. That's, that's crazy. Cause you know, he's been starting pretty much every single game for Arsenal since he was, you know, 17, um, a bit nuts, but no, Bowen is a great shout. He's been uh, an, an incredible. Because in the top Ham. six though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he wasn't going, going into the season, right? They, they were oh, okay. playing in Europe. Well, I guess, okay. I guess big, that's, that's in his well, favor. This but. season, the big six were the top six, actually, right? So that, that hasn't necessarily happened the past couple of years, but it was the case this time, top six being the big six. No, you're right. That, that is a good point. And also, you could say that Arsenal not having Europe this season might have done him a, a bit of favor, right, in, in Premier League stats because he didn't have to get rotated as much. Um, but mm-hmm. 11 goals, seven assists, um, you know, overperforming XG. I thought he played really well especially considering Arsenal, you know, don't have an established number nine, although Nketiah obviously um, play, was playing really well at the end of the season and just signed a, a new contract, by the way. But um, no, Bowen's a great shout. And I guess you left out Rice, so you had to get your West Ham inclusion in there somewhere, right? Yeah, and I, I think that West Ham deserved an inclusion. Arsenal, I would have understood, you know, Saka or Ramsdale, even either of those are, are shouts to me that uh, players could or people could put in their team of the seasons for, for sure. I'll have one more uh, controversial statement before we move on, Justin, and that's that I'd put Pickford over Ramsdale for team of the season. Well, Pickford's had a great season. Pickford has had a great season as well, but it's just, yeah, I don't know. I think that when you you get a transfer, especially within league, uh, as Ramsdale did, it gets a little bit more eyes on you. And so people pay attention to that season a little bit more where Pickford has been good uh, for Everton for a while. Obviously he had, you know, a little bit of drop in form, but as we've said that the uh, slander he gets is unwarranted. Yeah. And won the Premier League save of the season for that one-off aspect of Quetta and rightfully so, but Justin, you were talking about Mane and how it was hard for you to leave him off the list. Well, you won't be able to keep him on it next season. It seems because he <laughs> will be leaving Liverpool, um, you know, obviously really big news um, for the Reds. Um, but we had very different reactions to this. What is your take on Mane being set to leave, you know, potentially going to Bayern or, you know, we don't know the destination, but he will not be staying at Liverpool, it seems. Yeah, I think it's a massive loss for Liverpool. Uh, I think he's an incredible player. He's one of the best players in the world. Obviously, I was talking about how he's in the Ballon d'Or conversation uh, for this year, as he should be. Uh, I just don't see how it's not a massive loss for Liverpool. I understand they have Jota and Diaz to you know fill the slots, but they're not as good as Sadio Mane. And what he's going to do for Bayern, if he goes there, I think he will. Uh, it's going to be really incredible. He's going to rack up insane numbers there uh, and going to be a huge signing for Bayern, I believe. I don't know why. Obviously, you know, he has, I believe, one year left on the contract. So 
uh, he wants to leave. Um, but I don't know. I just think it's it's a tough one for Liverpool. They definitely just cannot lose Salah at this point. They have to get the, the contract extension over the line for Salah if they're losing Mane. Yeah, and, and I won't disagree that it's a tough one for Liverpool. You know, it, it, always when you l- lose a player who's contributed so much, it's going to be tough. But, you know, your reaction that you told me is, oh, it's horrible for Liverpool. And I really don't agree because here's my thoughts on it. it it's pretty clear Mane wants a new challenge. He's been there a long time, six years. He's won everything there is to win now, including um, his his AFCON Cup. Um, obviously, World World Cup, he hasn't won, but that's a whole different conversation. But the fact of the matter is you're right. He has one year left on his contract and they will get a fee for him. And with a club like Liverpool, especially, you know, with FSG and they don't like spending much more than they make getting these funds in to get a replacement for Mane or, you know, another attacker, because I, I, you know, as much as Diaz has come in and been great and Jota is a very good player, I still feel like they're going to have to go get another attacker, especially if they sell Firmino, which honestly I think they should, because I just don't think he's at that level anymore. Um, Getting a fee for Mane and not letting him walk for free. They can use that money and they've shown in their recruitment in, in, you know, their scouts and, the incredible data that they use to find players that that money they can turn into someone just as good. And I don't doubt it because they've been doing it for years now. Um, And so, yeah, as much as obviously in the short term, Mane leaving is not great for Liverpool. If they get a decent fee, which I think they will, um, and, and they can make the correct decisions for recruitment, which there's no evidence really other than maybe Nabi Keita to say that they've got many of those wrong. You know, I, I think they're going to be fine as long as they spend that money wisely. And I'm, as we talked about with Lewandowski, I'm a big advocator of, you know, getting a fee for a player while you can, instead of just letting them walk for free a year later, is it, would it really be worth it to get absolutely nothing back for him for another year? Potentially, but in, in the long term. I, I think as long as Liverpool do this right, they'll be fine. Yeah, if he's leaving anyway, uh, you might want to get a fee. But I just, yeah, a, a big loss for Liverpool for sure. And then the other one, which is probably the biggest uh, transfer news of this summer, is Kylian Mbappe. We discussed it a little bit last episode, but it was still emerging. We didn't have all the details on the contract. We're getting a lot more of that uh, over this past week. And it is becoming a, a massive story because Kylian Mbappe has now become the highest paid player in the world. He's getting 57 million euros uh, net per season. The bonuses are probably around 100 million euros. Um, and then the big part is that he is getting a, a say in not only transfers, but, you know, managers and, and he's, basically a, a, the GM of PSG, it seems. Yeah, I mean, they just appointed a new sporting director, Luis Campos, who has a previous relationship with Mbappe from when they were both at Monaco. And, it, you know, it seems like that's definitely related to the promises that they've made Mbappe. And here's what I'll say. In terms of the contract, I think Mbappe deserves to be the highest paid player in the world. He's still so young. He's getting better, it seems, every single season. He shows up in big games. And although, yeah, it's a bit ridiculous considering the other players on PSG's uh, wage bill, he deserves to be the highest paid player in the world, in my opinion. So I don't really have much of a problem with that, um, even though you know La Liga obviously did. And I bashed them last week, and I'll stand behind that because I still think that was just – I don't know them showing their true colors, if you will. Um, but yeah, him getting these kind of privileges 
no player should have that. Um, and, and, you know, there's the whole meme, and you were talking about this the other day, the whole meme of, you know, Pulisic being the LeBron James of soccer, as said by Pawn Stars on the History Channel. But with this deal, Mbappe literally is the LeBron James of soccer because he's making decisions <laughs> he has no business making. And we saw what happened with the Lakers this season. LeBron brought in a bunch of aging superstars and they didn't make the playoffs. Um, do I think that's going to happen here? Maybe not, but I will never advocate for a player having privileges like this, unless they are literally the player manager, like say Wayne Rooney at Derby a couple of years ago. Yeah. The question, the, the thing that's going to really tell me how much power Kylian Mbappe is actually given is whether Dembele is signed or not. If PSG signed Dembele, it means that Kylian Mbappe is deciding who they sign, which would be just ridiculous. Uh, you know, Pochettino probably gets sacked either way. I, I know Mbappe probably wants him gone and, and will be part of that decision. Uh, but to me, the biggest problem is because, you know, Messi got similar privileges at Barcelona when he was, you know, the best player in the world. And obviously you should be giving your star and your best player in the world a little bit of say, in my opinion, in yeah. the team, the team he plays with, not necessarily his manager, but the team around him, uh, understandably. The problem for me is this is a three-year deal, which means Mbappe is not committing his entire future to PSG. It's not a five, six-year deal. Yeah, This yeah. is Mbappe in three years, and in three years, he's going to do it again. He's going to he's gonna say, oh, well, PSG, Madrid are still interested in me. What are you going to give me this time? Now I'm, now I'm in the prime of my career, and I'm the best player in the world. What are you going to give me now? And that's the worry to me. No, that's a really good point because, you know, Messi had – privileges and, and i'd say it still probably wasn't as much as this i mean maybe he definitely had a big input in, in what they were doing but that was understandable considering that he spent like 15 years there and was consistently signing contract extensions and had no intention to leave and and still had no intention to leave even when he was forced to right like he didn't want to um this is very different because I, I i agree i don't think mbappe's loyalties necessarily lie with psg and as i said last week I wouldn't be surprised if he still ends up in Madrid at the end of this contract. So no, you're right. It's definitely a, a precedent that he can use to leverage against PSG every single time his contract is about to expire. Um, and that could end up being a problem, not only for PSG, but for football in general. Yeah. And then the other piece to it is he, he knew that he's now, you know, the face of the Qatar world cup basically. Right. Because uh, of the yeah. PSG's owners. And so that, that is part of the reason that they're going to give him pretty much whatever they want. They need him. Uh, to be that marketing uh, piece. And he's going to be, it works out well for them. And, you know, speaking of Barcelona, uh, their biggest target, and he wants to come to them is Robert Lewandowski wants uh, to leave Bayern Munich. He has said in his interview uh, recently. And so he, his exact quote was my era at Bayern is over. I don't see any possibility to continue playing for this club anymore. Bayern is a serious club and I hope that they will not keep me only because they can do it right. Because he has one year left on his contract. So if Bayern don't want to sell him, they don't have to, he has agreed personal terms with Barcelona. Uh, if Bayern want to sell him, it, it's a similar idea to Mane, right? He's, I mean, Mane was not necessarily, you know, definitively, but Robert Lewandowski is telling you he's leaving at the end of next summer. If you don't sell him. So they should probably just get a fee for them, shouldn't they? Yeah, and I said it. I, I don't think them holding on to him is the best decision, especially if they're getting Mane in. I mean, I you know, you know, Mane is aging a little bit, but I think a Bayern rebuild is not too far from the horizon with 
Muller aging. Um, they have Kimmich, who they should build the whole team around because he's undoubtedly world-class um, and can play in so many positions, obviously. But, I mean, I think they should let Lewandowski go, especially with what he's done for their club. I, I, I do think, you know, once you've been there for long enough, which, you know, it's been quite some time now, what, six, seven seasons? Uh, I think it might, it might even be eight. Um, now that I think about it, um, you know, I, I think that they should let him go. They should get the fee. It's not like it's that detrimental to them. It's clear he's not signing an extension. So respect the player's wishes, get your fee and start the rebuild. Absolutely. Uh, and Bayern, as you say, are going to probably get Mane. And then the other player that they're bringing in is Ryan Gravenberch from Ajax, you know, another young player. And we see that pretty much everybody out of Ajax uh, continues to succeed with very few exceptions in top leagues. I think that this will be just another example of that. And of course, when you're going to Bayern, it's it's going to work. It's going to be beneficial to you. Yeah, I mean, Gravenberch has been a hugely touted prospect for, for years. I, I'd argue, you know, his hype is almost bigger than Frankie de Jong's was when he was leaving. Although, you know, wow. Ajax obviously didn't have that, you know, romantic, champions league run at the time or you know this season before he left and you know that helped with de Jong's, um i guess profile and you know ended up with a huge money move to barcelona but gravenberch you know has been on the radar of pretty much everybody for probably three or four years and the dude's only 20 so i mean yeah. he's a huge prospect and, and i would i agree i would be shocked if he didn't succeed at Bayern. he has every key he has as I said, Joshua Kimmich, world-class midfield partner, and that could be a ridiculous duo for years to come. Absolutely. And then, you know, we're Lewandowski to Barca. Barca as well. Marcos Alonso confirmed uh, to Barcelona. I mean, he's getting a little bit old. I think that it's it's Barcelona just get a few old, uh, two old players, like too many of them, and they need to start get, buying some younger players, even Lewandowski. Great signing, I think it will be for them, but again, old. They need to be starting a rebuild, as you're alluding to Bayern doing, but they're not. They just keep getting these older players. Yeah, and they're also linked with Aspilicueta, which uh, I don't know about that move either. Um, they did just extend uh, Arajo's contract, which I think is a big get for them. Really promising yeah. young defender. Um, so that's a good get for sure. But I agree. They have young talent that they should be building around. Obviously, Pedri, you know, Ansu Fati, if he can stay fit. Um, Gavi had a really good season as well. But, you know, they want experience to, to complement that. And that's understandable. But Marcos Alonso, does he really make the squad better? Is he better than Jordi Alba was this season? I don't think so. Um, so, no, I, I agree with you. Yeah, doesn't make much sense. And then uh, another older defender who you put in your team of the season, did play very well this season, uh, Antonio Rudiger going to the other Spanish giant, Real Madrid. Yeah, and we've known about this one for a while, and, and I mentioned it earlier. I think it's a really good signing for them. Um, you know, Militao has been really good, but they have been lacking depth. I, I wouldn't say that Nacho Fernandez is the, the greatest center back. So having the options of Alaba, who, you know, what an impact he's had, by the way, came in, they regained the title, win the Champions League immediately. He was fantastic this season, and I'm not really surprised. He's been incredible really since his career started. So having the options of Alaba and Rudiger and Militao, I mean, 
I don't see Madrid's defense getting any less solid going forward, especially considering how, how good Ferlan Mendy was this year. And, you know, Carvajal has been dropping off a little bit and is aging. So they might need a new right back soon. But, you know, I think this Rudiger signing is, is really good, especially as he, you know, is in his prime, entering his prime even. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think that it's definitely a good signing for them. The only question that I have is uh, his his contract. I think he's on a half a million a week, which is just a, a ridiculous amount. I mean, that's as high as you give players basically uh, at this point, besides you know Kylian Mbappe, who we were talking about. But that, I mean, that's really as high as contracts get. So you're considering him basically as the top defender in the world, um, which. I don't know for, for how old he is, but definitely going to be quality uh, on the field for them. And then continuing with the uh, Premier League transfers, that is uh, Ivan Perisic to Tottenham from Inter Milan. Obviously, I, I know that you're a big fan of this one, Garrett. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I'm just, other than, you know, Marcus Alonso aside, I'm just saying, oh, this is a good signing. This is a good signing. But, I mean, this is a lot of really good business that we're seeing going down. I think Perisic is a class player. We saw that in the World Cup. We saw that even recently, just a few weeks ago, um, in extra time against Juventus. He was absolutely brilliant, scored two goals, one a pen and one an absolute screamer for Inter. Um, and it's more depth um, uh, going forward. I think it's a significant upgrade over Bergvine uh, for Spurs. Um, really good signing in my opinion. I, I think it's a big get for Spurs, especially as they were competing for his, his signature with Chelsea. So them getting him over Chelsea, I think is definitely a boost for them in, you know, their quest to kind of jump Chelsea and, and get, be the ones who are challenging your city and your Liverpool. Um, even though I don't think they will be challenging for the title next year, but you know, they're taking the right steps. Yeah. My question for him is just how does he fit exactly into this Tottenham team? Because is he just going to be a backup winger to Son and Kulisevsky or is Kulisevsky going to drop into midfield so that he can be in the starting lineup? That's my only question about it. Otherwise, you know, I mean, Perisic is still a very quality player, even at what, 33 years old, I believe. So still a very, very quality player, but just not quite sure he'll, how he'll fit into that Spurs team. Well, I think he can fill in at, at winger if he needs, but he has been playing wing back this season for Inter and it has been working. And, you know, you think about, Conte's system and that three at the back and they've been playing Ben Davies um, as left center back right and Regalon's just not really good enough um, and so I think Perisic will probably end up starting at left wing back and you know defensively mm. I wouldn't say he's the greatest but he'll have license to get forward um, and with you know probably another center back coming in which is what I expect Spurs to do um, maybe I mean Ben Davies had, had a really good end of the year but they could put someone really yeah. solid defensively behind Perisic and, you know, him and son on the left-hand side is absolutely terrifying. Absolutely. And then if they are bringing able to bring in uh, an attacking midfielder, a 10 to sit behind those three and, and contribute to Perisic, probably Christian Eriksen looking the most likely there. Uh, I think that that could really, you know, make a good looking Tottenham that Conte could cause a lot of problems with. And then another team, Justin, in the Prem that is just making a splash right now is Aston Villa, who are securing some big signings at the moment. Obviously, we know that they made Coutinho's deal permanent, but they've gone out and gotten two quality center backs, which although they've had you know reasonable depth at center back with Mings and House and Konza, none of them are particularly fantastic. They're just all kind of at the same average to good level but these signings i mean diego carlos from sevilla and camara from marseille are just fantastic for them 
Kamara on 150k a week is a lot. Um, and you know, you know, young player. So I understand it. It just seems like that's a, a bit much to give him right now. Um, but these are significant improvements to their back line and, you know, big signings for Gerard, but the expectations need to go way up because the finishing anywhere near 14th is, is not going to be good enough when they're spending money like this every summer. And, you know, I, I know they sold Grealish, but this is quite a bit of money that they're putting out here. Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you say, Diego Carlos will be a good partner to Tyrone Mings. I think that'll be a solid uh, center back partnership at that. Uh, for, for Villa, but uh, Kamara, yeah, interesting one to me. I think that he's, you know, been, I've always liked the player. I think he's good. Uh, as you say, the contract might be a little bit much, but for a young player, you know, that's what we've been seeing. You just got to give the young players the money immediately. Otherwise they're going to find uh, another club. Uh, but it seemed like that might be what he did with Aston Villa is he found another club who would pay him because Atletico Madrid were interested as well. Uh, and, you know, I heard a story that they actually just backed out because their uh, sporting director, I believe, went to um, his his house, Andrea Berta, the, the Atletico Madrid sporting director, went to Kamara's house and he was like in flip flops and a T-shirt or something. And he thought he was unprofessional, immediately didn't want to sign him anymore. That's a little bit ridiculous, but... I mean, I, I guess the one thing is um, in, in terms of the fact that it's it's Mings might be staying in the, in the squad because Kamara can play as a center back or as a CDM. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that Douglas Louise needs replacing, but if they feel Kamara is a, an upgrade over him, he might end up playing as a CDM. But I personally just don't think Tyrone Mings is that good. So I think that they should explore Kamara as a center back option and see if it's an upgrade on Mings. And if not, maybe they move him into midfield, but um, I, I don't know. I, I don't think Douglas Louise is, is that bad really. And um, you know, John McGinn is no. outstanding in my opinion. So. Yeah. Douglas Louise is a good uh, player. I agree. So I just think it might be for rotation. I mean, you really need depth in the premier league. That's how you succeed. And I think that, uh, that that might be it just with Kamara. But as you say, again, a little bit much if you're going to just be a rotation guy. Um, the other one is Jaden Braff to Dortmund. Uh, just Dortmund just snatch up young talents, man. I mean, understandably, because they turn them into stars constantly. But Jaden Braff, uh, to me, as a City fan, hate losing him. He's definitely a big prospect to me, one of the top 10 City prospects in the uh, City Academy, which is saying something, right? Top 10 might not be great, but it's City Academy is just so good right now. Um, trying to, to build a Lamazia 2.0, I think it, they're the best uh, academy in England. Obviously, Cobham, really, really good for Chelsea. But uh, I think that, you know, City won, I think, the U18, the U16, uh, multiple uh, academy championships in, in the premier league two and below this season so to me the best academy in england and losing one of their top 10 prospects to dortmund uh so we'll see how that works out i think it will be great for him uh at dortmund and then where he'll go after that who knows i mean he's really going on the sancho trajectory here so you know we might see him on the other side of manchester in a few years <laughs> okay easy <laughs> And then Justin, uh, just two more transfer stories to talk about before we move over to the U.S., but we'll go ahead and move over to the U.S. with these transfer stories. Uh, the first of which is Adam Buxa, obviously prolific goal scorer for New England, more so last season, but, you know, still has been contributing this year despite their poor season. Um, and it seems pretty set that he will be joining RC Lens of Ligue 1 um, sometime later this summer. 
Yeah, absolutely. It hasn't been officially announced yet, but p- pictures have leaked of him in their jersey, so it's a done deal. Um, but for New England, I mean, this is a big loss. It's kind of leaving Carlos Hill alone, and New England are having a very poor start to the season after setting MLS records last season. They're sitting in 11th right now. I mean, that is just worrying, and now you've lost uh, your best striker, the guy that Carlos Hill, you know, serves balls up to. You have to find a replacement and find one quickly. Yeah. And, you know, what I will say is we saw Nabil Fakir in, in a Liverpool jersey a few years ago, and that ended up falling through. So it's it's not quite a done deal. Not until you see the tweet, but no, it does seem likely. And, and I agree. I think Carlos Hill, this is uh, it's just not a good time to, to be selling books, in my opinion. They, they need to be picking themselves up, not worsening their team. And, you know, they're going to have to find a midseason replacement new to the system. I just don't know how this deal is going to work out. I guess if Books's head is turned enough, they don't really have an option. Um, but it's definitely a big loss for New England. And then Justin Fabrizio Romano dropped a bomb on us. Uh, I th- think it was yesterday. <laughs> uh, and, uh, it, well, you know, a bomb, at least if you're a USMNT and MLS fan like we are, which is that Real Madrid, the champions of Europe, newly crowned, are preparing an opening bid for Gaga Slanina, who we have been talking about. Um, obviously, huge up-and-coming talent for the U.S. just declared uh, t- that he wanted to play for the U.S. over Poland. Um, so this could be another U.S. goalkeeper going to Europe, right? We've seen it with, obviously, Stefan and um, Matt Turner. So, And now even Ethan Horvath will be a backup in the Prem next season right after Forrest won the playoff final. So yet another U.S. goalie in Europe potentially? Yeah, obviously the most promising young goalkeeper that uh, America has probably secondarily would be David Ochoa. But um, to me, I don't know. I don't know about this move. Look, he's been – Wolves have been interested. Uh, We know that they were going to prepare a a $3 million fee, I think, that they were going to bid. And we know Chelsea have been interested for a long time, probably would have closed the deal uh, if not for the sanctions. But unfortunately for them, that that happened, obviously. And so it opened the door for Wolves. Chelsea is still interested. I just don't know if Madrid is the option for him because, you know, you talked about the, the keepers that we have in England right now. We now have three keepers in the Premier League, but they're all backups the top three keepers uh, for the USMNT. Um, so the prop, we need keepers that are playing constantly. And Gaga Slanina, if he goes to Madrid, he's not going to be playing for Madrid. He's going to be loaned out. And if he ever gets to play for Madrid, because he has to become a world-class keeper in order for them to ever start him, uh, which, you know, hopefully would happen. But I don't think that him going there and then being loaned around is the best for his development. I'd rather he didn't go to Real Madrid. I understand it's great for... Uh, U.S. fans to, you know, see one of their own being linked to the biggest club in the world. But I'd rather he went to Wolves or somewhere else. I'm totally on the same page as you, although I, I don't even really want him to go to Wolves because there's no way he's starting over Josie Saw. But, uh, I mean, I think he should stay in MLS for the time being. I mean, he's still 17. Like, he's so young. He needs more games. He needs more experience. And I agree him getting in a loan carousel is not uh, the right move. And he might even be the third string there because, you know, Lunin, you know, you could say he could overtake Lunin, but the fact of the matter is that that's another goalkeeper on his level and neither of them are going to touch Courtois anytime soon because Courtois is literally the best goal in the world. So as much as, you know, oh, he could learn from Courtois, this or that, the fact of the matter is that, you know, the best keepers that we've seen develop 
they play first team football and they play first team football from when they're young. Right. But sitting as the backup, I agree. I don't see how that's going to help him much. I don't think it's helped um, Zach Steffen particularly. Um, I, nope. I don't know if it's going to help Matt Turner particularly. So I agree. I'd rather he either stay in MLS, which I think is the right decision, or if he goes somewhere, it needs to be with a guarantee that he will be starting most games. Yeah, uh, I have to agree with you there. Um, and then I think we can, you know, stay in the United States, but go to the cup uh, in which we had the U S open cup midweek, of course, the uh, round of 16. And so we can start with what was our game of the week. You know, we started our, our new segment game of the week this uh, past week in our episode. And, and we said that the El Trafico between the galaxy and LAFC us open cup would be our game of the week. We were debating between three, honestly, and we picked the worst one, didn't we Garrett? I mean, the other one would have been LAFC San Jose between our teams and then uh, the championship playoff final, but you know, we'll cover them both, but just talking about this LAFC LA Galaxy game in Carson, uh, it was a just pathetic performance from LAFC. I mean, look, Sharundalu decided to stay with his uh, 4-3-3, even though he only had one fit fullback in Diego Palacios, and he just started Sebastian Ibiaga, the center back, at right back. Um, and he started a, a pretty good lineup other than that, right? You know, he's starting Carlos Vela, he's starting his uh, first string midfield, uh, whereas you know, uh, on the other side, Galaxy benched Jonathan Bond, their starter. They started Klinsman. There was no Douglas Costa. There was no Koulibaly for LA Galaxy. They were having, uh, you know, missing some key players, and they still absolutely smashed LAFC. It was 3-1, uh, but, you know, that 85th-minute goal from Ryan Hollingshead, it doesn't mean much. It was a, a completely dominant performance from Galaxy, and it's because, to me, the biggest piece of this game was the tactical fouls. LAFC, anytime they went on the break, uh, tactical foul from LA Galaxy to stop the to stop the counter every single time. So LAFC weren't able to really create momentum. Whereas when Galaxy went on the counterattack, LAFC didn't do that. The first goal, the second goal, both on counterattacks for LA Galaxy. If you have a, a, a tactical foul there, neither of those first two goals happen. Maybe you're in the game for a longer time. Maybe you can find a way to, to win it. But there was just so many mistakes. And to me, that one stood out a lot. Yeah. I think it's really worrying for LAFC that, you know, Torundolo, despite having a better team, this is now the second time that he's just been, he's been bested by, by Greg Vanny. And the first game was a bit more of a smash and grab, but I, I look at this game and I think that galaxy absolutely deserved to win this. I mean, 17 shots, nine on target. You guys only tested the Carson backup keeper, Jonathan Klinsman, uh, once literally he only had one save to make um i don't think he made any saves we had one shot on target and that was the goal I oh you're right you're saves. right so so he literally didn't make a single save so i mean that's a problem right and and i said it at the beginning of the year and you know lafc still have such a good team that they have no excuse to not be at the top of the west and they are but when it comes to playoff games when it comes to, you know th this is the closest we've seen of that um under Trundolo, obviously. Uh, and it's a knockout game and you just get tactically outmatched. You just don't have the, the guile for it. And if you guys come up against Carson in, in the playoffs, I don't see you guys winning because it's just the inexperience. And even though the galaxy have a worse team, I think it, it's still just going to take some time for Toronto 
to, you know, really get his wits about him in games like this, in knockout games, in high pressure games, even though, you know, I wouldn't say you're walking the league, but you're doing very, very well. Like, do you get what I'm saying? I think, I think that managerial inexperience might really come back to bite LAFC once it starts to matter. Yeah, I think it's a good point. It's definitely something that LAFC fans are worried about, right? Their schedule so far has not been uh, very difficult. And so sitting at the top of the West is great and all, but you haven't played very many difficult games. And the games you have that have been difficult, you haven't been able to find a win in basically any of them. The most difficult being Philly 2-2. You lost at home to an Austin team, which you dominated that game as you did the Philly game, weren't able to find a win. As you say, now two losses in Carson, one in the league, of course. Um, but the two previous meetings in a tournament between these two teams, LAFC had won the the 5-3 in the 2019 MLS playoffs. And then the MLS Backus tournament, both were handle, handily uh, won, by the way, 5-3 in the playoffs and 6-2 in the MLS Backus tournament. Um, I believe Diego Rossi at least got a hat trick. I think he might have gotten four in that game. But uh, regardless, it, it's a problem. And so when you reach the playoffs and you're looking at things like that, you have to be able to win uh, under pressure. And so we'll see. Uh, I think that LAFC have a a tough stretch coming up in uh, June. And I think that that will show us heading into July, what LAFC are really made of. And Justin, we were potentially previewing our two teams playing each other in the next round of the U S open cup, but the quakes also lost against uh, Sacramento Republic. So obviously not as good of an opposition as the galaxy, but um, neither of us will be advancing. Uh, we went to Sacramento and I don't want to say we got shite housed, but we kind of did. I mean, 70% possession, 17 shots, five on target. We, we don't score. They got their opening goal through Luis Felipe Fernandez off a set piece in the 28th minute. And then it was Rodrigo Lopez on the counter in the 83rd, which, which sealed it. It was a poor performance for the quakes, um, with a rotated lineup, of course, but, I mean, it really disappointing to, to go out of the cup like this, especially after the heroics in Seattle. So, Justin, we're in the same boat now. Neither of us uh, will be moving on in the U.S. Open Cup. Yeah, I feel like if Cavello wanted to win this game, he should have put out a better lineup. It's a little bit disrespectful of Sacramento. I understand they're not an MLS side, but a little bit disrespectful to rotate that heavily and maybe deserve the, the loss because of that decision. Um but yeah, absolutely. It was tough for you uh, as a fan. And, you know, I went as a fan for once. I've, I've been covering the games as a reporter recently for Area Sports Network, of course. And I got to go to this Carson game as a fan, which was not fun as a fan, obviously. Uh, and then the other big game uh, in the U.S. Open Cup being uh, the other derby in, in Florida, the Florida derby, which uh, ended up going two penalties it went nil nil into extra time and then we had a couple goals uh first Jean Mota for Inter Miami in the 94th and then Facundo Torres responded three minutes later uh but sent it to penalties which uh Orlando City then won four two uh, with DeAndre Yedlin and Bryce Duke both missing penalties obviously DeAndre Yedlin just coming back um from Europe back into the MLS and then Bryce Duke, who, you know, former LAFC player, I, I thought that he would, you know, do well for Inter Miami and, and get his chance that he deserves as a young player. Uh, but unfortunate miss for both of them. Yeah, but Orlando deserved to win this game. I mean, they, they were all over Miami and, and just couldn't find a way through. And, you know, they weren't clinical, only getting six of their 28 shots on target. And obviously, you know, that's through. 120 minutes so a bit inflated but the fact of the matter is still Orlando deserved to win this game and they made it way harder on themselves than than they needed to but they got the result that they deserved and and they will be moving on yeah 
Absolutely. Uh, a couple other ones, New York City ousting uh, New England, New York Red Bulls taking out Charlotte, uh, Sporting Kansas City knocking out Houston. And then a couple that were not within MLS, Nashville took out Louisville City, uh, the ULSL side. So I think they're the last USL side left. And besides Sacramento, of course, we're still in it. So they're they're gone. Sacramento, the last one left. And then uh, the last League One side left, Union Omaha, found a way uh, to beat Minnesota in Minnesota. This is exactly why we love the US Open Cup, isn't it? Cup sets, uh, two goals in the 45th uh, and 51st uh, for Union Omaha to come back after uh, Minnesota took an early lead. They, I mean, this was a shite house too, wasn't it? Right. I mean, completely dominated 75% possession for Minnesota, but uh, Union Omaha found a way to win. And that's what we love to see. Yeah. Well, a little tough for Adrian Heath, who I obviously have a, have a soft spot for, but I mean, a league one side still being, being in it is, is a bit ridiculous. And I will definitely be rooting for them going forward. Imagine if they've won it all, obviously not going to happen, but would be yeah, a, they have a, to, incredible story. They have to go to sporting Kansas city uh, in this next round, which is definitely going to be difficult for them in the, in the quarterfinals. Obviously we said we have LA galaxy, Sacramento, then sporting Kansas city, union, Omaha, New York Red Bulls will play New York city. So we'll have a, a Derby there. Uh, and then Orlando city, Nashville, those are the four quarterfinals for you. Although what I would say is that, you know, Minnesota are significantly better than Kansas city at the moment, Kansas city, are rock bottom of the West having played an extra game, but still, um, you know, you know, you know, Omaha definitely have a chance in that game. But speaking of MLS, Justin, we can turn our attention towards uh, the fixtures we had on the weekend. Um, before that, we just wanted to talk about the the new prime blue jerseys, which were introduced for the first time last year. Um, and then we got new ones this year. And I just wanted to say, um, it, you know, every, every team was wearing them. So um, the fact of the matter is that the blue one was infinitely better than the white one because okay firstly prime blue why are you gonna have a white kit when it's prime i don't get that uh secondly the pink text whose idea was that you can't see it it's it's useless it's just like if they're wearing a white t-shirt out there um absolutely (laughs) awful whoever made that decision um but the blue ones the blue and orange blue and orange i'm i've always thought that's a nice color combo so i like that one but the white prime blue kit is an absolute L for MLS. And I, I thought it was a bit of a disgrace <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. I mean, look, I didn't hate it as much as you. I, I think the blue one was a little bit better, but I didn't think that those were necessarily super easy to read either. Those orange, it just wasn't, nothing stood out, but you um, see the number. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, LFC's white ones were especially bad because they didn't even get the the pink sponsor because Flex said uh, d- denied it. They said it has to be black or white. And so they had to put it in black, which a, a lot of teams got the pink sponsor, which at least looked a little bit better. But yeah, I don't know. It, it's one that, you know, MLS tries these new jerseys so that they can sell. This one is not going to sell. Uh, I liked the warm up kits better. I, they were rainbow. I'm not sure if they were pride or what exactly they were, but uh, the rainbow kits were really nice. Uh, I was talking yeah. with another reporter at the game that it should be, they should do that this summer and wear those as real kits. Uh, those would sell really well, I think. And then speaking of teams playing in the prime blue, I guess, speaking of teams who had to keep their sponsors black, it was LAFC <laughs> playing against the earthquakes, the upper 90 Derby, if you will, um, yes. at the bank of California stadium. And man, this one did not fail to entertain. 
Oh my God. No, it did not look. Yeah. This one I, I was reporting on at the stadium. It was just an incredible game. I mean, Look, the, the story for LAFC coming to the game was that uh, after that terrible performance in Carson, the 32-52 were protesting, a silent protest for the first 12 minutes of the game. I'm not sure the exact significance of the 12. My best guess would be, you know, 12th man, maybe. Um, but silent for the first 12 minutes, obviously one of the loudest fan bases, if not the loudest in MLS. And you, it seemed to be a response from LAFC. It was Chicho Arango uh, in the seventh minute burying the penalty after Hollingshead drew it. Um, uh, uh, he was, he was tripped. I believe it was by Tommy Thompson. Uh, not sure though. Um, or no, I actually, it wasn't, it was, it was Tommy Thompson was there, but it was, it was Gray Goosh from behind. I believe I mm. thought it was, you know, Tommy Thompson at first, but I'm pretty sure it was the back heel, uh, his, the back of his right heel that got clipped, uh, Hollings said, and then Chicho with his little, you know, stutter step penalty, sending Marcinkowski the wrong way seventh. And then right after the 32 52 started to sing in the 12th minute, Ryan Hollings had himself buried, uh, a goal, you know, really just a smart finish, sifting the ball from his right to his left after Brian Rodriguez found him at the very top of the box right inside. And he just put it in the bottom left corner and he felt like LAFC might run riot at that point, but San Jose turned the game around. Uh, it was a Bobasi first in the 16th minute, finding the goal uh, to, to get San Jose back in the game. Uh, and then he had a massive chance that he blundered. I don't know how he missed this one, Garrett. Uh, it was literally an open net from two yards, four yards away. It was it served on a platter to him by Christian Espinoza, and he somehow whiffed it. Sebastian Ibiaga got back in time and was able to, you know, uh, muff it away uh, with the help of Crapo. But Abobasi had to have finished that. And then he did finish again in the 31st minute uh, for his brace which should have been a hat-trick, obviously, and put him level on golden boot race with Jesus Ferreira of FC Dallas. Um, but this one was just horrendous, horrendous marking uh, from LAFC. You know, the first one was pretty bad as well. Uh, obviously, Ginella was his fault, just getting picked off by Jaime Montero. But the second one was just, it's a set piece, and nobody is marking Jeremy Bobasi's run at all. I can't even tell you whose fault it was because nobody decided to mark the run. Uh, just didn't make sense to me at all. Um, and then in the second half early on that the pace kept, kept on because the first half was just insanely frantic as we've said. Uh, but it was Brian Rodriguez burying it, uh, from a nice ball across from Jose Cifuentes, uh, with his left foot. So Brian Rodriguez getting a goal and assist. He was man of the match for me for sure for LAFC. I gave him a nine out of 10 rating. I thought he was really, really incredible. Best game of the season for him. Uh, but I thought that the reason he was so good was the shift in formation for LAFC uh, into what was a 5-3-2 in the, in the second half. But to me, it was a 3-5-2 in the first half. Uh, Sharondaloo said in his postgame presser, which I didn't really understand, he said there was no tactical change at halftime. To me, there was a large tactical change. Acosta uh, and, and Hollings said those wing backs dropped much deeper um, in the second half, which is why San Jose had a ton of chances in that first half and less possession, but then San Jose had the vast majority of possession in the second half and couldn't find a shot on target because uh, it locked down after Brian Rodriguez found that goal. Yeah. I mean, neither of these teams could defend in, in the first half, really. Um, you're right. I don't know how Bobasi didn't score that one. Uh, and he also had a header that he put over. He could have had four goals in this game, but as you said, the brace, four goals in the first him, half. 
Yeah, I have four goals in the first half. Right. As you said, the, the brace puts him level with Ferreira for the golden boot. And now Christian Espinosa, who should have had another assist. Um, he's yep. level for the most assists in the league. He should be outright the most assists in the league, right? Because that would be his eighth. And should Francisco be. Calvo leads the league in interceptions. Yet the Quakes are still towards the bottom of the West and still leaking goals for fun. Uh, and it's a bit <laughs> ridiculous that, you know, the stats look great when you look at, you know, individual performances. Yeah. But we just can't string together a couple good results, you know, in a row. I guess we had two or three, but then, you know, right back into giving up three goals. Um, and yeah, I was really disappointed when, you know, right at the beginning of the half, it's an awful time to concede. Um, and, and then we just really didn't do enough to get ourselves back into it. So disappointing loss for the Quakes. But in terms of our performances at the bank, it's definitely not the worst one that I've seen. No, but it's moving. It, it, it's just that, yeah, it's again, LAFC, you know, winning and staying still at the top of the supporter shield uh, four points clear in the West uh, over Dallas. But it's just, again, beating a, a non-quality opponent. We need to wait till they play the quality opponents, which will happen uh, this in, in June uh, going into July. And then we'll really, really get to see. And then Justin, we talked about Carson earlier, obviously because of El Trafico, but in their MLS game, Dejan Jovalich made history. He came off the bench and scored two goals and got two assists, becoming the first player in MLS history to contribute four goals as a substitute. And they turned around what was uh, a 1-0 deficit against Austin, thanks to what was a, a beautiful goal by Diego Fagundes, a little cheeky yep. outside of the foot, uh, reminiscent of Ronaldinho at Stanford Bridge. Um, but Jovalich came off the bench and absolutely turned this game on its head. Uh, just a historic performance from him. Yeah, I, I mean, look, Galaxy absolutely deserved to win this game. They dominated Austin, uh, and it would have been a smash and grab, but it, it, they found their way through as they deserve to, and it was the story of Jovalich. Look, he has to start for LA Galaxy. I don't know why he's not starting. I understand that Chicharito is your star, is your striker, and you don't want to you know put another striker on the pitch, but maybe you need to switch to a four four two. I don't know what you need to do, but you need to find a way to put this guy on the pitch because he is so good and has been all season now uh, in the cup and the league. He needs to have a sporting starting spot for LA Galaxy, undoubtedly. Yeah, or even just and put then, him on uh, the wing. Like, there, there's no way he would be yeah. worse on the wing than, like, Cabral or Grancier, neither of who I think are, are very good. I think Grancier has been been pretty good this year, but uh, Cabral, yeah, I, I think he would be better than Cabral. Uh, but uh, when Douglas Costa comes back, obviously he's going to take that spot. So I don't know if you put Jovalich over Grancier. That, I, I get that Grancier's playing well as well, but Jovalich, yeah, probably you just start him over Grancier at that wing. Uh, and then... In the Eastern Conference, New York City uh, went top of the league after they beat Minnesota 1-0 and Philadelphia drew uh, with New England 1-1. So they hop Philadelphia and now lead the Eastern Conference. They have had an incredible year and they also have a game in hand on Philadelphia and most of the other teams in the league. All the way down to what? Eighth place? All have a game in hand on them. Yeah, I mean, the the reigning champions doing reigning champion things. Um and, you know, it, it'll be really impressive. But obviously, you know, they won MLS Cup from the fourth spot. But if they can win uh, the East outright, that would be very impressive and, and would really show that despite the fact they play in a baseball stadium and their championship banner is about a, a foot long, um, they are a real franchise to be reckoned with in this league. 
Uh, yeah, I think the big question for them this season is going to be, uh, do they sell Castellanos in the summer, right? Because he has a ton of interest from all around the world. Um, but if he is sold, that's going to be a massive loss for them. And they're going to have, it's going to be harder for them to make that MLS Cup run. But if they keep him this summer and then, then they have a great chance of repeating. And then Justin, uh, we are running out of time. So we're going to move on to our uh, relatively new segment that we've been closing all our recent episodes with. And that is our moment of the week. Go ahead and give us yours. Mine is Port Vale co-owner's son, Patrick Shanahan. Uh, he has this, the longest hair you've seen uh, down past his waist and he cut it off in the dressing room after uh, after Portville secured their promotion to league one in the Wembley dressing room. It was just a, an incredible moment. I think that it was just a motivating factor, right? He's told them before the game, if you do this, I will cut off my hair. And he kept to his promise. It was just a moment, a human moment uh, in the locker room that I just love those type of moments. And that's why it's my moment of the week. Yeah. And then he was waving it around like a, like a towel celebrating in the dressing room <laughs> yeah. with the players. And my moment of the week is also some scenes in the dressing room, but this time is from Real Valladolid who will be returning to La Liga um, after winning a, a promotion playoff as well in Spain. But Ronaldo Nazario, the legendary number nine, Brazilian R9. Uh, he is a co-owner of the team and he came into the dressing room and they mobbed him and uh, the scenes were fantastic there. So I, I think it was great, you know, with obviously there's heartbreak of teams getting relegated, but some of these celebrations that we've seen have been hysterical. And so that's the two that we've picked here. And I have to put in the best Ronaldo, by the way, ha have to just put that in there. Um, and then of course we've been do we introduced our new segment game of the week. Uh, we have the international break right now, so we won't put a club game, but we will be covering uh, the U S two friendly games against Morocco and Uruguay, two very quality opponents. I think uh, will be a good test for the U S and we'll uh, have those both as our co-game of the weeks for the next episode. And with that, Justin, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at U90Football, that's U90Football, and on Instagram at U90FootballPod. Um, as we said, we'll be covering those USMNT games next week, as well as um, you know developing transfer news, because that's not going to stop coming all summer. Uh, so look forward to that, um, and we will see you next week.